Medicine Unboxed is many things, but probably at its simplest version, it is trying to explore the interface between medicine and humanities. And uh, perhaps then it's not a huge leap to look in more detail at humanitarianism. And I would be the first to admit, as an oncologist, lots has been said about oncologists already, and medical director, I'm the worst person to explore this, but I'm massively honoured to share the stage uh, this afternoon with Paul McMaster, who definitely is qualified. Paul retired as a surgeon from the NHS in 2000, but has subsequently held numerous senior posts with Médecins Sans Frontières, and um, as such is extremely well qualified to explore this subject, and is a man who is humane and extraordinarily admirable in this area. So, Paul, I'd like to invite you to say a few words first, and then we'll have a discussion. It's a pleasure to be with you uh, today. I'm always a bit nervous, Sean, particularly when there are medics in the audience. I think uh, many of you recognize, particularly for any anesthetists here, that surgeons fit into the 15% of psychopathic personality. So I hope you'll be, I hope you'll be kind. If, in medicine, if you change direction in your career when you're young, people are sympathetic and encouraging. If you do it when you're much older, they think you've lost your marbles. And the talk I'll give this in a few moments, perhaps, that'll very much confirm them. But it's a pleasure to be here, to perhaps have a moment to talk about a different world, a different reality, where some of the views that we've been touching on today are seen very different. If you live in a community with a life expectation for most people of 40 years, where the commonest cause of death between 15 and 35 in men is violence, in women is childbirth, your approach to the sort of questions of mortality that we've been discussing is rather different. So, would you like to say a few words? Shall I do that? Yeah, absolutely. Good. Being an ex-academic, I have to have my crutch here, you see, to lean on. I can't do the Steve, uh, Steve Jobs. Some of you will know that uh, Médecins Sans Frontières is a medical charity that uh, takes medical volunteers to go to communities in crisis and work with the people, with any health workers that are still there, to help their, help their people. We say that we try to save lives and relieve suffering. We translate that as we save lives when we can. We relieve suffering when we can. And when we can't, we stay with communities in their crisis and show that somebody cares. For most of the volunteers that come with us, Have I broken it already? <laughs> Did I go the wrong way? Maybe I can just ask some then to work it for me. What have I done to it? Just pushed. Which one did you press? That one. Okay. For most of the volunteers, 
they worry very much, they won't have the medical skills. How am I going to cope out in wherever it is? I, I'm a family doctor in Cheltenham. How can I cope with these exotic diseases? And the truth is that isn't the problem. We've got our protocols, we can teach, we can train. Most of our work is in this sort of setting, a rather remote uh, rural hospital in Africa. And this is an exciting day, because Thomas, who is sitting there, who insisted I took this photograph, had the first x-ray that had ever been taken in that hospital. And you see uh, my colleague looking at that. And Thomas told me the next morning he felt so much better after he'd had that x-ray. <laughs> yes, isn't it wonderful? <laughs> if only. And in these settings, we will struggle with uh, tuberculosis to the medics. Multi-drug resistant tuberculosis is such a common. We'll work in countries like Myanmar, Burma, where HIV was not recognized as an entity officially till about, I forget, four or five years ago. We treat some 40,000 patients there and many, many other settings indeed. So that's where, should you volunteer to be with us, we'll probably put you. And we'll take you into... I'm really so. What am I doing? I'm just pushing what that gentleman asked me to push. <laughs> Sorry. And we'll take you into a fabulous, different world. Almost nobody comes back having fallen in love with where they were, whether it's the rugged mountains of Afghanistan, the high hills of Papua New Guinea, the deserts, and the people that they've been with. But it's a beautiful, but it's a fearsome and frightening world on occasions, and a lot of my time now is spent rather than taking the teams in preparing. And preparing for what? If I said to you now that the women in this audience can't give permission for an operation. It'll need to be their husband or brother or father who may have a very different view. I have to talk through with teams how we're going to react to that situation. To work in places where female genital mutilation is normal, indeed thought to be imperative for women's health. How are we going to handle all that? Because an overreaction may not only cause difficulty, it may cause a major security incident and actually result in the team having to be evacuated for their safety. So we spend a lot of time in preparation. And as a surgeon who was responsible for our emergency team for some years, I'm going to talk about a brutal element of our work. You'll see on the news, and you've probably heard us uh, in various places talking about the natural disasters. And there can be few settings where communities are not uh, damaged and destroyed. I'm really sorry. Can I ask, can I just show a signal? Is that okay, guys, at the back? I can't see you for the light. But have I switched it off, or what have I done to it? Because this is going to be seriously tiresome. What am I doing wrong? It's just this button now. That's what I'm pushing. I'm pushing this one. I can advance them. If you, if you would, I'll just raise my hand. Is that all right? I'm so sorry to... You see, I told you senility was taking, uh, setting over to me. Can I do that quickly? Have we got that? So, here we are. This is my ward 
36, hour, 36 hours after the Haitian uh, earthquake on the 10th of January, 2010. This is the road, of course, outside the hospital. The hospital's not just damaged, it's unstable. And you can see, and the young medics in the audience will make some of the diagnosis. And what's our team doing? Or which patient are we going to take first? What are the priorities? And we use what we call triage, where we select patients, knowing that we cannot treat them all. And we start as quickly as we can. Sadly, many will have died in the rubble and the earthquake, but others will have damaged limbs which can become infected. And by starting immediately, we do two things. One, we may help to prevent those infective deaths. And secondly, you see, we start to provide a focus for the teams, for, 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 for the national uh, doctors and nurses, if there are any, uh, to come back. And this is the under-the-tree phase, which we, which we go in and do. Uh, before the cavalry arrive, usually 48 hours, and we get our field hospitals in operation. Many people really struggle with triage. Who, who are we going to take? The one which will benefit most? Or the one, the child perhaps, or the mother of the child? So we struggle. And we struggle in this setting. This is now lapping the shores of Europe. But many of our conflict situations where we work are run with men like this. And there's the immediate events, of course, the shootings, the, the woundings. But it's the displacement of thousands upon thousands of people that has that second hidden health agenda. They become exhausted, they're robbed, they're raped, they become malnourished, the children start dying of malaria. And if you're not careful, you end up with the disaster and obscenity of this. And forgive me, I hope I'm not distressing you. But here are women who, because of displacement, because of conflict, have been unable to get help during their childbirth and have ended up with internal damages to their organs and are left completely incontinent. We call that fistulas. And here is the camp that we did not too long ago with, with these individuals having been restored uh, to, to continent. So it's not just the direct effects of conflict. But let's bring it just a little bit nearer home. These are the direct effects. This is outside one of our major clinics in Aleppo, I think last, uh, last year or so. And so we descend into the cellars in our inflatable operating theatres to carry on the work. Now I show this because some of the discussions that we have can appear a little bit esoteric to the teams. This is northern Afghanistan, the 3rd of October. The trauma center we've supported for four years that is known to everyone and the GPS coordinates are known to everyone that was bombed on the 3rd of October by NATO over a two-hour period in three strikes, killing patients and staff. And here the guys are that night down in the basement trying to restart things. And what about this obscenity? Ebola. Yesterday I heard people talking about a cupboard and the lack of sensitivity. And yet just look at the horror of the way we struggled last year to care for people in West Africa with this viral illness that nobody wanted to know about. World Health Organization, the CDC, 
And only when two missionaries came back to North America and a nurse to the UK did suddenly the world say, hang on, what, what, what is happening? How can you nurse a dying patient in, in this whole uh, uh, um, uh, suited up situation? And it is, I think, an immense tribute to the young volunteers, many hundreds of whom came and trained and went out, that they were able to show I don't know if it shows, perhaps maybe it doesn't in this picture, trying to show some empathy and compassion. And again, triage at the gates. By 10 in the morning, most of our clinics and facilities were full. Go away. Take your loved one back. As one man said to me, you, you want me to take my child back to infect and kill the rest of my family? Is that, doctor, what you're asking? So the teams will struggle and not come up with solutions. And if the team is made up by a Russian, a Brazilian, a Frenchman, someone from Thailand, they'll come up with different conclusions. But they're all there to try to support people in crisis, people who won't live to be 85 and become demented like me. Thank you very much. <laughs>
we could have shown a thousand terrible, heart-wrenching pictures like the little boy on the beach for 18 months, but feel there are limits to what we can, we can do. So I think um, being exposed to human mankind in a broader sense than Main Street to Cheltenham or Cambridge or Birmingham is something which is immensely enriching and perhaps helps us to put into perspective some of our own problems. So we might come back to that, but mm. let me just explore that Mediterranean comment a little bit more. Mm. There's a sense of um, shame, maybe is the right word, I, I can't find the right word just at the minute, that I tune in and listen to yeah. all through the night the events in Paris, and yet Kenya and other places in the world where atrocities of equal magnitude are happening on a regular basis. They don't hit the press in the same way. Indeed, they only seem to become important locally when they finally manage to find a British person or even better, an English person who's been killed. Mm -hmm. That seems to somehow or another make it more important and yet self-evidently it isn't. And how do we change that perspective? I think we need to be careful. We're not trying to create a sort of mega misery for the whole world. <laughs> I think in 1911 there was a cholera ep epidemic in uh, Bengal and a million people died and it took sort of five months before that appeared in the English newspaper. Because of the communication it's instantaneous now. But I think what I, I would just ask of us is that um, um, the, the, the people that are drowning in the Mediterranean, the people who are being uh, trafficked across the seas to Lesbos and Kos and Macedonia and Serbia, are the same ones in the ref uh, have come from the refugee camps in Jordan and, uh, and, and Syria and uh, Lebanon, and are the ones whose families are internally displaced within the country. And I think just that broader awareness, I mean, the younger generation here, Sean, is so much more aware of what we're doing to our planet and our climate. And, and my prayer just is that they will be more aware of the globe, more aware of the globe, and, and, and take that into account as they think of their lives. If there's a time in their lives that they can help, I can't paint, I can't write poetry, I can't teach. I occasionally can do a little bit, we'll take that opportunity. And if that opportunity doesn't come, how do we survive? Vast majority of our resources come from individuals who give their five euros a month to support the work our nurses and doctors do. So I think a broader awareness without the sensationalism sometimes of the news of ten is, I think is very, uh, is very right as a humanist. Uh, and that's approach. optimistic. Um, and yes. maybe you, you will, ha you will have yes. a greater sense of this, that, that perception yes. of the global nature yeah. of what's going on. Yeah. You genuinely get the sense that is beginning to impact on younger people and their perception of yeah. the importance of the I life so. in Sudan as yeah. much as it is in Cheltenham. Yeah, I, th I think so, Sean. I, 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 I'm sure the Daily Mail saying bad things about young people today, they are fantastic. They care, they're aware, they're highly critical of our generation. Get out of the way, we'll sort it. And part of my task is, you know, uh, there's a naivety about that. I have to channel those energies. No, I'm immensely optimistic. Just imagine what sort of world would it be if I showed pictures like this and nobody cared. 
Nobody would, would volunteer their time and efforts. Nobody would give resources or the campaign. No, I'm immensely optimistic that, uh, that, that, that a lot of very good things are And not just in Western Europe. Now, many of our volunteers come from India and some from Asia and South America. No, no, I think there's a very switched-on generation coming through, Sean. And I've, you talk in some of your uh, interviews I've seen of you of the local people who also contribute to the work you do no. in that locality. No. Sean, the work is done by whoever we go in to support. My French is not good, I work in French. My Swahili is worse. We work in support of whoever is there, that we can draw together and help them to help their people. We're not going to rebuild the whole health service for them, we can't do that. But in their crisis, in their disintegration, we want to be alongside them. And so for the medics who come to us who are all worried, I say, look, the only phrase you need in the local language is, how do you usually deal with this? Okay? And that's the starting point. And what would this uh, child mother, what would she want to have? How can we help her, really? So we don't get off the plane with our big white hats on as the... We're there to be alongside those people in their time and offer encouragement and support. But of course, for many of the areas where you go to, yeah. they usually deal with this is, they can't, it's, it's not something they usually see. So the no. Ebola epidemic, yeah. this was a, a disease and an illness that yeah. was alien to them. So Indeed. they can't answer that question, yeah. I, I'm guessing. No. And, and I showed examples of the crisis where, frankly, the whole thing's overwhelmed. If we just take Ebola for one moment, um, to, to control epidemics, it's not so much treating people at the end, but turning the taps off of the spread. And without going into detail, there were cultural traditions of, a, of death and handling the body. And we, we have epidemiologists and anthropologists that went in and started to understand. And then we tried to work with the communities so that we could have safe burial arrangements. Indeed, the outbreak probably exploded because a very senior um, clan leader is the wrong term, but died, and a whole community came to pay their respects. I think eight or nine hundred people, and sadly, because of the approach, that caused an explosion. So we have anthropologists and we have clinical psychologists who, who try to work and understand what. Uh, for, for, I remember somebody saying to me in, in Sierra Leone how dreadful, dreadful, that's not even the right word, he felt that when he, his wife was buried, she did not have the right uh, preparation for, for, for the next life as his. And this dreadful feeling that he'd let her down in not providing her with all the appropriate, what a terrible thing for a person to feel. Hmm. I just wonder what your thoughts personally, but maybe as a group uh, in Médecins Sans Frontières, why are you there? Are you there to save life? Are you there to prevent suffering? What, what's your role? Um, I'm not quite sure how to answer that because I think my personal and organization is slightly different. We're principally there to help people to live their lives in as fulfilling and as rich a fashion as possible. 
cripples, to use that awful term, are, are very common in many parts of the world. And, and, and so to deal with a severe disability someone has, to free them from, from begging from others, for, for, to take a silly example, enriches their lives and supports them. And I think we see that as our principal aim. That sometimes means it saves life, but, but it's supporting the living to support their families and to the often farmers in the rural settings be more able uh, to meet uh, the needs of their, uh, of, their, uh, of their families. I find it quite difficult because I don't have a problem with death, if I can put it that way. A little bit like Woody Allen, who said, I'm not afraid of death, it's the process of getting there that troubles me a little bit. And we try to work very hard with people at entering that phase and see if we can turn it back and help them. Um, but we're all going to end our days. It's how we live our lives that I, I think is, to me, most important. Yeah, we don't, we don't want to lower the tone, but it no. is a, it, life is a sexually transmitted terminal illness, so we can't get over that, can we, really? <laughs> but um, mm, mm, mm. but that, that issue, and I th Sam Guglani has explored this very yeah, well in, in yeah. the, the Lancet essay, yes. that the, the, the link between the word suffering and patient is absolutely critical in yeah. how we function as doctors, wherever we function as doctors. Yes. We try as an organization to not use the word patient a great deal. Because? Because if you're not careful, you've got a sort of hierarchical, I'm the doctor, you're the patient. Right. I come with the knowledge, the skill, the big machines. We, we try to think of them as fellow human beings in yeah. a different place. And, and, and once we do that, it becomes, well, what can I do which c can aid and support that? There is a tendency, if you're not very careful, if you go in with the machinery, to, for folk to be awestruck with the technology you bring. And, and if you're not careful for the health workers, you can profoundly demoralize them. The local health workers. The local health workers. You yeah. turn up with all the shiny stuff and you ring up uh, Paris and send another load of drugs and another load of this and surgeons and anesthetists. And they know full well that that's not perhaps going to be sustainable. So we try to modify very much our medical approach to be suitable in the situation. So the x-ray was because uh, in that center, uh, tuberculosis had become very difficult in the region of multidrug. But we wouldn't normally rush in with all that sort of technology. Uh, if you take South Sudan, where the conflict has again become absolutely uh, devastating for many, many thousands, I think I'm right in saying there's one orthopedic surgeon in the country. I think I'm right in saying. Certainly there was no gynecologist about 18 months ago. People have fled. Well, you, you need to temper, therefore, the approach that you'll take in that situa situation. So, so, Sean, we're there to help and support. We don't have magic wands, nor indeed do the medics in this country have moderate magic wands. One of the differences, the expectation many of the folk we go to help is, is very low, mm. very low. Health care, if it's available, is almost certainly not free. I've seen families bankrupt, literally selling their land to pay for treatments that are next to useless. Mm. What a terrible thing is, is that. So to have people who say, well, 
um, is really very, very important. So we have to, one of my tasks is to not lower the expectations of the medics, but what may be appropriate in London or Frankfurt is wholly inappropriate in Malaysia, in North Kivu, in Congo. Quite wrong. Focus on the simple, focus on the trauma, focus on the women and the children, the obstetrics. Caesarean section saves thousands of lives. Do the simple stuff, really. Um, we're not going to be doing neurosurgery and thoracic surgery. These, these are terminal conditions. In most of rural, I'm, I'm not, obviously I'm exaggerating just, just a little bit. And as I say, when your dominant cause of death between 15 and 35 in men is trauma, often with secondary infection in many of our countries, the machete is the Mark I rifle. And, and so you get a bad machete wound, and then the next thing it's infected, and then or the women will, will die and die in labor. If we can tackle those and the malarias and the die, all the uh, simple things, then we make a big, big impact. Surgeons are useless. I, we, we, don't, we don't do a lot of, you know that, I think. Sean's smiling because he knows that. We need to make a note of that. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. And I, maybe just to pick up on that, yeah. I, I don't know whether you've got any reflections. It, you've possibly already answered this, but when you were working in, in the UK as a yeah. surgeon, uh, you were in a very high-tech field, I believe, liver yeah. transplant, etc. Yeah. Yeah. Is there any sense of mm. um, a contradiction there between what mm -hmm. you personally did and the resources mm -hmm. that were put into that, what you mm -hmm. now witness? Uh, yeah. Yes, I struggled with that. In my early days, it was uh, uh, confronting young people who were dying. Was ne I didn't find it easy. If they were dying because one tiny part of their body was malfunctioning, if I can use that awful phrase, such as their kidneys, that seemed a particular tragedy. Everything else was fine. They were on the threshold of, of life. And it seemed tragic that for the sake of fixing that one small element. And so an immense amount of work and research went into all that, and as you said, ending up in liver and small bowel and, and so forth. And that seemed to me justified because they were young, they were healthy. If we could fix it, they would go on to leave, uh, lead, 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 lead great lives. And that as a relatively rich country, rich in knowledge and skilled doctors and anesthetists and physicians, putting that effort into one individual, in my humble view, was justified. Um, the egalitarian philosophy of treatment. Now, in my world now, we can't do that. That's not possible. And I hinted at triage, making choices. And so our approach is the utilitarian philosophy of trying to do the greatest good for the greatest number of people. And that may mean, Sean, I'm sorry, for us to treat you, we'll take up most of the team for most of the week and half the resources, and will mean half this audience can't be treated. And we have to be open about that. And that, that's very difficult for teams to prepare. Maybe just before we put the house lights up, do you think if you'd followed your own counsel that you have now, and that is go and do this when you're young, you would have come back and done something different? I mean, it's probably impossible to answer wow. that. Isn't it? I think if I'd gone and done this as a 28-year-old medic, I'd never have come back, Sean. Okay, so the answer is yes. <laughs> um, 
I wonder if we could have the house like that. Just while hands are going up, um, Paul did express some anxiety about earlier on about whether he was worthy to be on the stage, considering the intellect of some of the, the stuff we've seen mm. on the stage earlier on over the last two days. I, I don't really think that question needs to be asked anymore, does it? So there's one down here to start. Hi. Yeah, thanks for that. That was really inspiring for um, a medical student here. But, um, I was wondering if when you return to, to Britain and to Western countries, you ever feel a sense of disgust, really, at the kind of bloated excess. You seem very magnet, you know, you, see, you say you regret, you, you um, what, I just aren't. <laughs> yeah. um, gosh, I, I try not to take judgments. Um, I, I'm now 73. I, I have no wish to be 93 and befuddled and frightened and no wish at all. Um, my family are well aware of it. I have, by the way, can I just as a diversion, I've, I've got a diagnosis for dimen uh, dementia. You've probably read in the papers the government are looking at it. It is you count the number of times you go upstairs and when you get there you can't remember why you've gone upstairs. And I'm now up to three a week. So I'm getting, get, getting to... Now I don't feel disgust, but what I fear is that, you know, we watch television and house and the movies. The expectations are now up there. And your generation is going to have to grapple with... There may be many in this audience who've had unfortunate experiences now. And if our resources don't match these expectations, then, then we don't help people. And what frustrations they and you will feel. So that worries me very, 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 very much indeed. But please don't spend large resources. Uh, I'm not elderly, I'm mature, Sean, but please don't do that. I have a young family and uh, young grandchildren. That's where the, the future, future lies. And I have no, no fear of uh, the more elderly, I don't really know what that classifies as. Do you think we ask them that question often enough? That w how hard should we push? How much resource should we invest? I, I'm a bit out of touch, Sean. I would ask you that question, or the audience, because with, with, with two brothers, non-medical, <clears throat> I see totally different responses to when I say some of the things I do. I, I wonder, do we ask people what they would would like, whether you do and the young people here. My own prejudice is that we don't, but somebody may pick up on that. There's a question over there. Well, first a comment. I think that was very inspiring. And I worked in Africa as a 25-year-old doctor. Yes. Uh, and at that time, and I think maybe still, there is, there was a hierarchical attitude that we knew best. Yes. And one of the reasons I came back was yes. after a couple of years was that I was beginning to feel inadequate that I should know more, whereas in fact on reflection I was saving more lives with scalp vein needles yeah. than with uh, any high tech. That's just a comment and it's great to hear the philosophy that you've got. Yeah. Yeah. Second is a question, you were very restrained when you showed the picture of the bombing of the hospital in... Um, in um, Kunduz. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Now, there is no way that could have been an error or a mistake. Why do you think it happened? I'm on my 
best behaviour this afternoon. Um, um, it's a tragedy, it's a terrible thing that, that has, has happened. Um, the process that's being gone through now is a series of inquiries. Um, President Obama has uh, directly contacted us and apologized and said it was a mistake in the uh, chain, of, chain of command. There are other, other views. We're very angry about what happened, if I'm absolutely frank, um, and I don't want to go into the details, but you can imagine the impact of repeated bombings on a, on, on a hospital. But two weeks later, we have a hospital bombed in Yemen. Oh, very sorry, collateral damage. In Syria, repeatedly, clinics are being damaged and attacked. And it almost seems as if maybe there was never a time when hospitals were sacred and were protected places under the international... Well, I won't go... But we're really increasingly worried. We know we're in difficult places. Our, 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 our people take risks, that we accept that. But we seem now to be moving into an era because so much of the approach from the, from the West comes from 30,000 feet, where there's an acceptance that sadly hospitals will from time to time be obliterated. We reject that, and we're calling on the international community to try to reinforce that sanctity, if that's the right word. But we are very angry and very upset for what has happened. There's another question here, yeah. Um, th thank you very much. I, I, I think there are some wonderful things we can take from what you said uh, about Médecins Sans Frontières and it's um, feel, uh, it, your, your approach to going out there and finding out, firstly, what, what do people want out of me and yeah. listening to the local people. And I was just thinking about that of how doctors who sometimes agonise about whether to intervene or not intervene just may need to value the, the gift that they give by their simple presence in a situation where uh, a patient and family may just merely need um, a doctor to have responded to the call, come to the house, say, yes, you're doing all you need to do, giving the patient permission to stop taking the tablets that they were taking, and, and the great comfort that that brings uh, often, I think, is just undervalued. Thank, thank you. I think we've run out of time. Um, hmm. I'll just say on that point that uh, I picked up on that uh, concept of asking the local community and the local people hmm. what they need. And it feels almost like that approach to medicine is significantly more sophisticated than the approach we have here sometimes. So actually, although the technology might be at a lower mm. level, some of the approach to medicine is sometimes more sophisticated. Mm. I'd like to express my extraordinary, extraordinary admiration for Paul McMaster. Thank and you for listening this afternoon. Thank you.